what you have just uh, witnessed or enjoyed in the last few moments when Brother Howard came and began to speak, in my opinion, is the closest setting to the New Testament that you will probably ever experience in an apostolic service challenge you to search your Bible, Jesus did not do it the way we usually do it. He didn't read a text. He would usually just sit down on a mountainside and open his heart and begin to share eternal truths. While Brother Howard was speaking, I was sitting there looking at him thinking, this is what it would be like in New Testament times. We would journey out to a place we would sit and listen and they would share with us principles just like he was doing. So I say to him, thank you, Mother Howard, for obeying the Lord. I, for one, will remember this morning very uh, intently. And I hope they taped it because I really need to listen to that again. There's a couple of things in there that were real revelation out of the heart of a man that has lived his life for purpose of the Lord. I'm going to uh, probably read a text. <laughs> I guess I'm not New Testament. <laughs> Second Chronicles. Having hung myself, I will now read my text. But Peter used a text and Paul used a text. I, I'm not totally out of the New Testament era. Second Chronicles, chapter 13. We as, we as a, let me make a comment or two here concerning things that I've felt. We as a people, we get distressed sometimes because we feel nobody really understands where we're at. We, we try and we pick up the phone and we call our friends or we try to explain it to our pastor, maybe to our wife or husband or family member. But you know, it's frustrating to, to not be able to tell somebody exactly how you truly, truly feel. We don't know how to express our woundings. We don't know how to express our pains and our heartaches. And then that's compounded sometimes because it seems like nobody cares. You know, I call folks when I know they're down, but nobody ever called me. You know, that kind of a deal. But I want you to understand that Jesus made a little statement through the Apostle Paul in the writing to the church at Ephesus. He said that you might know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge. He doesn't want you to be able to express those feelings to another human being. Because if you did you would find your ultimate satisfaction in a human relationship. What he wants you to do is be frustrated in all of those attempts so much so that you finally just say, you know what, Jesus, you're the only one to understand what I'm trying to say. Can't nobody else even understand what I've been trying to say right here. <laughs> That's right. He does not want you to find your ultimate fulfillment in your human relationships. He wants the highest plane of your fulfillment to be in His presence. Hallelujah. Another thing I want to say, and these are just a couple of points I thought of while the bishop was speaking. Some of you are getting real nervous because you're not everything you want to be in God, and it seemed like it taken a long time. Well, let me introduce you to God. He said, I think I'll create a world. So the first day he said, I think I'll create light and darkness. I said, it's enough for today. I just rest a while. Got up the next day, he said, hmm, what am I going to do? I think I'll separate water from water. And he got done with that. Now, he could have done it all in one second. He could have done every creative act in a millisecond of time. You can spend all your time trying to figure out hot and cold differentiation, how geological process started, and all the basaltic magnetic rock, and all that kind of stuff. 
But God said, on the second day, he said, I think I'll separate the water from the water. That's good, I'll rest a while. Third day, he said, you know what, I think we need some dry land. And then on the fourth day, he looked at it and he said, you know what, I didn't finish what I started on day one. Light and darkness are divided, but it's really not finished. I need a sun. Boom, just spit it out there. There was. Science tries to figure it all out and tell us how hot it is and how hydrogen atoms coagulated and how the, the heavy, you know, all that. They, they try to figure all that. Scratch it. And figure out. God said, poof, there's the sun. Need some stars. Boom, there they are. Then he said, I, I, that's good enough for today. That's enough for today. I, I'll rest a while. Some of you all hung up because God hadn't done it all in three weeks in your life. Why don't you just let God do his creative work in your life? Why don't you just take peace in the fact that, you know what, I may not have my sun and my moon yet, but I do have my light divided from my darkness. I might not have ever fish swimming in my ocean right now, but thank God my water above is separated from my water below. He's right on time in my life. He's doing everything that needs to be done right on time. That's right. That's right. I'm introducing you to God. He just takes his time creating things. He's just doing some things in your life. And he's, he rests every now and then. And he expects you to kind of rest with him. And so just take it easy. Take it easy. If I were an academic today and I were teaching you a class, I would review some things. And so let me briefly review these things. While I was up here last night, uninvited unbidden to my mind and my spirit while I was I was right about right there knowing nothing prompted by the Holy Ghost I made a statement I said eight years ago something happened in this church and in my spirit I felt that eight years ago something happened that brought some kind of a curse and what happened last night was God broke that and uh, <clears throat> if they listen to the tape they'll hear this I, I said to you I said the enemy has worked against Sister Johnson's mind, against Brother Johnson's heart. And last night he worked against their child. But God broke that. And the reason I'm reviewing this is you need to remember that God took charge of that situation. And last night does not need to be a service that you quickly forget needs to be a time in the history of this church that was a turning point. It was a hinge. It was a pivot point that something began that God is going to do a tremendous work among this congregation. Take that broken curse seriously, and you may think it trivial, but go get you some pencils and break them every now and then and just say, check this out, devil. This broke off my life. You're trying to tell me it's here, but it's broke. Here it is. Pop. Throw it on the floor. It's broke broke I will not accept it back again in my life there is a lamb in my house and I'm not accepting your curse I'm sorry that was for my daddy that was for my mama but that's not for me I am free from all of that I am delivered there was a definitive final conclusive work in the Holy Ghost in one way last night and you need to accept that now we're moving on I'm gonna read a passage of scripture out of 2nd Chronicles 13 and uh, I don't always do this. Sometimes I'll just read a part of a verse. But last night I read and read. And today I'd like to read some verses. I hope you love the Bible. Because that's what we're reading out of today. We're not reading out of Funkin' Wagnall's Dictionary or World Book Encyclopedia. We're not reading out of Time or Newsweek or the modern day newspaper. We're reading out of God's book, the Holy Word of God. The Word that has persevered and is preeminent in all of the universe. Second Chronicles 13. Now in the eighteenth year of King Jeroboam began Abijah to reign over Judah. He reigned three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name also was Micaiah, the daughter of Uriel of Gibeah. There was war between Abijah and Jeroboam. Abijah set the battle in array with an army of valiant men of war, even four hundred thousand. Notice the next words. What's it say? Chosen men. And Jeroboam also set the battle in array against him with 800,000 men, notice what it says, being mighty men of valor. And Abijah stood upon Mount Zimmerim, which is in Mount Ephraim, and said, Hear me, thou Jeroboam, and all Israel. Ought ye not to know that the Lord God of Israel gave the kingdom over Israel to David forever, even to him and to his sons by a covenant of salt? 
Yet Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, the servant of Solomon, the son of David, is risen up and hath rebelled against his Lord. Now Abijah's fixing to really rail on them. First of all, he says, Jeroboam, you're a rebel. Then he says, And there gathered unto him vain men, children of Belial. All you guys that are with him over there, you're a bunch of sons of the devil. You strengthened yourselves against Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, when Rehoboam was young and tenderhearted and could not withstand them. Now you think to withstand the kingdom of the Lord in the hand of the sons of David, and ye be a great multitude. And there are with you golden calves, which Jeroboam made you for gods. I can see him as he kind of stands on a rock. He kind of takes a deep breath and swells his chest a little bit. Have ye not cast out the priest of the Lord, the sons of Aaron and the Levites, and have made you priest after the manner of the nations of other lands, so that whosoever cometh to consecrate himself with a young bullock and seven rams, the same may be a priest of them that are no gods? Anybody can preach in your pulpit. He just got to have a little money in his pocket. That's what he was saying. He can buy his way into your priesthood. He says, but I, swells up a little bit here. But as for us, the Lord is our God. We have not forsaken him. The priests which were which minister unto the Lord, the sons of Aaron, the Levites wait upon their business, and they burn unto the Lord every morning and every evening burnt sacrifices and sweet incense. The showbread also set they in order upon the pure table. Now these guys are getting ready to fight a big battle, and he's out here giving this speech. Can you imagine? They're chomping at the bit, saying, let me at him, let me at him. He's up here talking about all this day. He said, In the candlestick of gold, with the lamps, to burn every evening, for we keep the charge of the Lord our God. But you have forsaken him, you bunch of backslidden Israelites. And he says, And behold, God himself is with us for our captain. And his priest was sounding trumpets to cry alarm against you, O children of Israel. Fight ye not against the Lord God of your fathers, for you shall not prosper. Now, this is when the action kicks in. But Jeroboam caused an ambushment to come about behind them so that they were before Judah, and the ambushment was behind them. And when Judah looked back, behold, the battle was before and behind, and they cried unto who? The Lord. And the priests sounded with the trumpets. And the men of Judah gave a shout. And as the men of Judah shouted, it came to pass that who? God smote Jeroboam and all Israel before Abijah and Judah. And the children of Israel fled before Judah, and who? God delivered them into their hand. And Abijah and his people slew them with a great slaughter, so there fell down the slain of Israel five hundred thousand chosen men. Thus the children of Israel were brought under at that time, and the children of Judah prevailed. Why? Because they relied upon the Lord God of their fathers. I'm going to preach to you today about the storm. The storm. Somewhere in your walk with God, you will get into the greatest storm of your life. But what I'm going to preach to you today is my guarantee to you that if you'll do what I preach about, there is no storm that can sweep you off your moorings. There is no storm that can sweep you out of the church. You got heaven made. It's in the bag. It's a guaranteed deal. It's done deal today. If you'll get a hold of what I'm preaching about, I can promise you, you will make it to heaven. Now that's a big boast, but I hope to back it up today. That's a big boast. But if you'll get a hold of this, you will make it to heaven. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today humble gratitude for your works in these services thus far I did not plan on preaching this God and you know that you know just a few moments ago you changed my direction and put my heart in this passage of scripture I ask you today God to let your work work in us hallelujah thank you Jesus thank you Jesus thank you Jesus do a work do a work do a work today Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. God bless you. You may be seated. Did not plan on preaching this all since last evening. I planned on preaching something else. But God is sovereign and He can 
tell me to do whatever he wants me to do and so I'm very happy to oblige him I've tried it the other way a few times and it is a real unpleasant experience to go ahead and preach what you think is cute or nice just turns out to be a real bad deal so I'm just going to uh, preach out of my heart today I didn't bring any notes on this subject I I'm just going to talk to you out of this passage of scripture which to me is one of the greatest revelatory passages in the Old Testament. I'm going to just give you some information, maybe be a little more academic today than you're used to. It's a daytime setting, so I hope that won't bother you too much. But that don't mean that you have to sit back and not say amen now. Just be glad you get to say amen. There was a time when all them amens went to the curses, you know. Every time they threw out a curse, all the people said amen. And Thank God there finally came a time when we can say amen to positive things and rejoice a little bit and God's kind of turned that around. I'm going to tell you today that you as a child of God are inclined to study the word of the Lord and read the word of the Lord from a very egocentric point of view. You don't usually take your Bible down and say, I want to study this book from a literary appreciative standpoint. Usually you're mad at your husband and your kids are being rebellious or your bills are due or your car's broke down or your job's on the, on the line. And so you, you grab that Bible, you get to flipping through it, boy, and it's God, give me something today. I, and you're looking for a little Pentecostal fix. It's like, ooh, I need it today. Please, Jesus, I, I need a pick-me-up today. And you got all your verses marked in your Bible when he came through and you shout and talked in tongue, testified about the Bible. Well, today I'm going to talk a little bit uh, on a different plane. I don't know that it's any higher, but it's a different plane in appreciation of the Word of God and show you why this text that I read to you today is of paramount importance to you as a person that's trying to get through the muck and the mire of life to a place called heaven. Hallelujah. I want to go to heaven. If I never attain wealth in this life, I still want to go to heaven. I, I'm telling you, there isn't anywhere that I want to go like I want to go to heaven. Hallelujah. I know there are those that propagate the idea that heaven's not a literal place. They want to preach that it's spiritualized and there's no real street of gold and there's no real mansions and no real gate of pearl. Well, all I have to say to that is get back, Jack. I don't want to hear what you have to say. I want to believe that there really is a heaven. I, I want to believe that someday I'm really going to get a crown and a robe and I'm really going to get to go to be with the Lord. I still believe the Bible said, I have not seen, ear, hath not heard, neither have it in the heart of man the things that God has prepared for them in heaven. So, I want to go to heaven. You know, I, it may be some, some wild, youthful experience like some of these far out guys get, but I'm still old-fashioned, and I still like the songs about heaven, and I still like it when somebody just gets the old songbook and starts singing about a land far away. Previous generation was more into that than this generation because they didn't have our affluence. They didn't have our nice automobiles houses and comforts and when they came to church they'd get to singing about heaven and they still had the dried sweat in their clothes and the aching muscles from a long hard day in the hot sun and there would be a wistfulness that came out of their spirit singing about a place called heaven that our generation somewhat lacks but don't take them out of the book let's just keep on believing there really is a heaven there really is a heaven and so if I could preach to you something today that that could guarantee you that you can make it if I said to you today, I'm going to preach you something that you can mark it down. If you do what I'm telling you, you will make it to heaven. If I were you and it were reversed, I'd be saying, tell me what that is. Because I'm like interested in going there. That's like where I want to go. So I'm going to take this little story that to me is somewhat of an enigma in the scripture. The story of Abijah and preach to you out of it. Abijah is a remarkable biblical character because if you read the dual account, the other account, the stereo effect that you get sometimes out of Kings and Chronicles, and you read his story in 1 Kings chapter 15, I don't want to be unkind to good old Abijah, but the fact of the matter is the Bible rates him a big, fat, whopping zero as a king. 
When you read the book of Kings, they hardly give him a passing note. I, sometimes I read it uh, just, just to give you an added understanding, but I was reading so many verses I gave you uh, a breather today. But you can go home and read it. It's 1 Kings 15, verses 1 through 8. And basically what they say is this guy was evil and he didn't do anything very good and we're just going to pass on to the next guy. And so the book of Kings, you reading along there in Abijah, you get the impression, you know what, he wasn't too uh, uh, good. He didn't do much for, for God. And then you keep reading and keep reading in your little daily Bible reading or however you do it. And then you come across Abijah in the book of Chronicles. And it's like, hey, wait a minute. This is not the same guy that was in that of the book. Wait just a minute. They said he was a zero. They said he never did anything worth hearing. And all of a sudden, I'm reading this little story right here where this guy walks out on the battlefield and and has the greatest victory recorded in the pages of the Bible. I'm telling you that no time in the Bible at any time that they went out on the field to fight were there uh, a victory. Was there a victory of this magnitude? 500,000 men died in battle. It's the single greatest victory in the history of the Bible. And so this guy is like somebody. It's like, wait just a minute now. He, he just pulled off the biggest upset and the biggest victory and the biggest military Terry, uh, a thing in the, in the history of the Bible, and the kings don't even give him the time of day. What's going on here? Well, first of all, you have to get off your egocentric view of the Bible long enough to appreciate the Bible as a book in itself. I'm an advocate of there being times in your life when you study the Bible in just keen appreciation for the book as a whole as a gift from God, not some need being met, not just because I'm in trouble and I need a promise to hang on to, but because this is the greatest book that God ever gave to mankind. I'd like to understand it better. I'd like to know what its purpose is. I'd like to know why these books are in the Bible. Some of you probably in Sunday school learned the books of the Bible. But, but really, I find in our Pentecostal circles, we don't have a lot of real deep understanding about the Bible. And we don't always understand the premise behind the books. Why is this book even in the Bible? What is its overall significance? What, when, when I read this book, what are these books all about? I can tell you simplistically today that the book of Kings are basically history books. Originally they were one book. The Hebrew language is a very compact language and there aren't vowels and so first and second kings originally was one scroll and when they translated it out of the Hebrew into the more wordy Latin and Greek they of course broke it into two books and, and now we have the books of first kings and second kings. Originally it was but one book and of course the book of kings and the book of chronicles and somewhat the book of Samuel, it's, it's the history. It's the history of the nation of Israel. And primarily, it is the history under the time that we refer to as the monarchy. If you read the book of Judges and the book of Joshua, that's the time when they took the land, but they were under the reign of the judges. But the books of Samuel and the books of Kings and the books of Chronicles are books that have to do with the monarchy. And the books are different in their approach. And they're different in why God included them in holy canon. And they're in there for a different reason. And their purposes were different. That's why I think that this story concerning Abijah has a real direct bearing on you and me and whether or not I'm going to make it to heaven or not. There is something in this story that is worth you understanding. There is a nugget of understanding and revelation in this little story right here that supersedes the era that it was enacted. It, it goes beyond the battlefield that day. It's bigger than what occurred on that afternoon, with, that afternoon with clashing swords and screaming men and blood flowing and men dying on the battlefield and a great victory that they went home and bragged about. Boy, we really cleaned the clock of that northern uh, nation today. We just won the greatest victory that Judah has ever won. And anybody's won. It, it, it goes far, far beyond that. What I'm sifting through this story to get today is the principle that's involved here that will see you through the most difficult times of your life. That when your back is to the wall and you don't know where to turn and you don't even know if you're going to be able to get through what you're in right now. I'm going to tell you, if you'll get what I'm preaching about today, you can just flip back over that is 2 Chronicles 13. Read this story all over again and say, you know what, God? I've got the answer to my dilemma. I've got the answer to my problem. I've got the answer to what I've got to do to make it. Nothing is going to keep me away from the banks of heaven. I'm going to eat of the tree of life. I'm going to be there and see the river that flows. I'm going to make it to heaven. 
The book of Kings are historical books. Just, you know, they tell everything. I've heard people say, I wish I lived in the days of the Bible. Son, I don't. How'd you like for the Bible to tell your life story? Brother Johnson, get up and preach about you every Sunday night. What you don't do to be a Christian right here. The Bible tells everything. David was a great king, but the Bible does not omit the story of Bathsheba. It tells everything. I don't want to live during the Bible days. I do not want my life in the Bible. <laughs> Maybe you do. Maybe you're. But I'm telling you, there's some chapters of my life I'd be very happy for nobody to ever know. Get them under the blood, Jesus. Let's just put them back over there somewhere. I don't want to be there. So you read stories in the book of Kings that you don't read in the Chronicles. And I mean, they're good stories. You know, there's a little story that we all tell our children, a little Sunday school story about, about a young shepherd boy walking out onto the battlefield with nothing but a sling. And across the valley is this behemoth, this large warrior that's got this huge sword and this giant shield. And, 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 and we tell it with embellishment. Our kids get all starry-eyed. and Tell us the story again. We want to hear about the giant. We want to hear about the little boy and the five stones. And, and you know, that's a pretty cool story. I like it anyway. You guys act like you don't like it, but I, I like that story. I think it's really... I'm glad it's in the Bible. I'm glad God told us the story of David and Goliath. But isn't it amazing that the writers of the Chronicles, they didn't even include it. They said, nah, we don't want to tell anybody about that. And what I think, I think, man, what's the deal here? This is a wonderful story. The writers of the Chronicles did not include the story of David and Goliath in their books. And then there's that little episode that I mentioned a while ago about... Bathsheba, you know, it was kind of a bad time in David's life. It was, it was like, I really would appreciate it if this was never known. And, and to me, that had ramifications on the empire, uh, the entire empire and, and, and the nation. And, and, and the roots of that reached down into David's children and generations to come. I mean, it was a big deal. And all the intrigue and the murder and, and, and the ensuing guilt and, and all of that. And it was one David's great mistake in life, even though he made other mistakes, like uh, the census where 70,000 people died. God didn't charge him with them because they were not intentional. And, and there's a lesson in that in itself that God really looks at your life and where he really gets concerned are the intentional mistakes. Some of you are killing yourselves over unintentional mistakes, but go to the life of David. And when he numbered the, the people and did the census and 70,000 people died, and at the end of David's life, it's God that said, he served me all his life, save in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. God, if you'd have been one of those 70,000 that died or your husband would have been one of those 70,000 that died, you'd have been saying, Wait just a minute, God. David made some more mistakes than that. But God said, yeah, but I'm going to count him with the ones that he knew he was making mistakes. I'm going to hold him accountable for what he knows to do in his life. And there's some joy in that if you'll give yourself a little reprieve in living for God. That God holds you accountable for what you know you're doing wrong. But some of you have made mistakes in the past and certainly before you came to God. You need to realize when you get to the end of the life, God's not going to charge you with them either. But anyway, Chronicles does not include the story of Bathsheba. It omits some of the most significant stories in the Bible. We don't like it as well because it's not as personable a book. It really is a book about two things. It's about the monarchy and about the temple. And see, we as people, we like, you know, like, uh, I don't read these magazines, but I mean, the world likes them. They like these little tabloids, you know, you're checking out at the grocery store and it's got... The National Enquirer, and it's got whatever else they got. I, I don't read them, but I, you know, people like that. It's like, oh, yes, let me read. Because we like to read about people. And we don't, we're not too crazy about buildings, you know. And, and Chronicles deals a lot with how long it took them to build it, and so many thousand men, and seven years in the building, and it's all of this. And, and, and it's, but, but let me tell you about the book of Chronicles and why I'm even bothering to mention it to you here today and why I think it has unbelievable importance in the Word of God. The kings were written before they went into exile. We believe them to be written contemporaneously with the kings as the events transpired. Otherwise, while they were happening, men were taking pen and quill and writing down what happened. We know that the books of the Chronicles are probably written in post-exile times. They are written at a time when the people were in exile. The northern kingdom had already been carried captivity 721 B.C. into Assyria. The southern kingdom was now down in Babylon 586 B.C. And you got Jeremiah over there in Jerusalem. You got Ezekiel down there in Babylon 
ministerial effect to the prophets are trying to help this remnant down here and, and the chronicler is sitting there observing all of this they have now been down in Babylon for 70 years for 70 years their religious uh, 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 principles have gone undealt with they have not celebrated the Passover and when they look back at their city it's, it's gone the, the Assyrians and the Babylonians have seen to it that the city is destroyed that's what the whole writings of Nehemiah is about and the, and the book of Ezra and the, and the reformers of Haggai Zechariah and Malachi last three prophets in your Bible that's what that's all about but, but the Chronicles looks out there and it says you know what our temple is gone it's laying in ashes it's, it's gone our, our wall is gone our city is gone our nation is gone we're down here in the middle of Babylon we've hung our harps on the willow we're just down here weeping we're trying to make it and the chronicler was looking for things that would inspire a nation to believe that God would yet raise them up again and establish them in their homeland so when he starts sifting through the ashes of their history he does not deal with things or they do not deal with things that the writers of the kings do they omit certain stories and yet they add other ones and so the kings look at Abijah and they say you know what he's a real bimbo he's a real zero he just a, he's a nerd of the king he really doesn't deserve any time here we're just going to pass him on by one old priest said Hickamashai pass him on by we're just going to go on by him and go on to some more kings that are of note but the chronicler said oh wait just a minute wait just a minute I see something here in the history that happened that will revive a nation that feels like it's on its last legs. A nation that feels like it has no future. A nation that feels like its religion has been stripped out of its hands and its homeland has been destroyed and its temple is destroyed and there's no culture and there's no religious activity at all. I've got to find something to tell them. Wait just a minute. Your God is going to live again. He lived in the past. He's going to live again. This is not over. There's going to come a day that you're going to go back to your homeland. There's going to come a day that God's going to rebuild your temple. You're going to yet be the people of God. I've got to find things in the history of the nation that I can accent and write down to prove to them that if you do things God's way, God's still on your side. It doesn't matter how bad it looks. It doesn't matter that you've been down there for 70 years. I'm here to tell you, God's going to take you home. God's going to see you through. So, when you read Chronicles, it's, it's different. Two-thirds of the book, two-thirds, is given to eight kings. And there were 19 kings in the north in a row, which are basically dismissed out of hand. 19 kings and one queen in the south over a period of 335 years. And Chronicles devotes two-thirds of the book to eight of those kings because it wants them to know we're not here to talk about the bad You've already read in the Kings about all the bad things that happened to our nation. We're going to show you the glory. We're going to show you the enduring things. We're going to show you that in the ashes of our nation, there is the seed for a future restoration. It's there if we'll sift through the ashes. There are some principles there. There are some things that God honors there that will serve you in your captivity. That will serve you when you're down. And you don't know how to get up. And so I bring you this little gem out of the book of Second Chronicles. This little gem is an amazing story to me. Because none of us that day, had we been there, would have believed that Abijah could have pulled this feat off. Number one, he had only been reigning for three years. So he's a rookie. Number two, he has never been to battle. He is extremely inexperienced. Number three, his men, whom he has, are only chosen men. They're not valiant men. It's one thing to be chosen and quite another to be valiant. I've been picked for things in life that I was not qualified to do. I've been picked on a basketball team that I knew I was going to lose. But I was picked. And number four, he had 400,000 men. Now, if you remember the reading of the text, how many men did the other fella have? Okay, now you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out that on this side there are 400,000 men, chosen men. On this side there are 800,000 being valiant men, mighty men of war. Secondly, the guy on this side, Jeroboam, 
has been in power for 18 years. Read your Bible, you'll find out he was a rival to Solomon himself in wisdom and understanding in the ways of men and the prudence of governing a nation. 18 years the man's been in power and he's never lost a battle. This guy's daddy, Abijah's father, a fellow by the name of Rehoboam, tried to fight Jeroboam for 15 years and lost every time they fought. So you've got a guy over here that's undefeated 18 years continuously with 800,000 marvelously strong soldiers. And you've got a nothing of a king over here that basically doesn't even know what's going on as far as being a king. And he's got 400,000. And who are you going to put your money on? It's a cakewalk. They're sitting over there saying, we whipped his daddy and his daddy knew what he's doing. This guy don't know which end of the sword's up. We got it in the bag, Jeroboam. And then to top it all off, this young, inexperienced, I hope I'm not being irreverent, twerp of a king gets up on some rock somewhere and he says, I'll tell you guys, I got something I want to say to all you guys over there. I want to tell you guys something. And then I look at him like, you little twerp, just come on out here on the battlefield. He said, I tell you what, you guys are a bunch of devils. That's what you are. And they're like, well, this guy's tripping out. What's wrong with him? He must be off his medicine or something. <laughs> that, that's what happened. He said, you guys are a bunch of devils, that's who you are. And I'll tell you something else. I think you guys don't even have any idea how to have church. Oh, he was laying it on. He said, your preachers are a bunch of hirelings. Anybody preaching your pulpit. If he got a fat cow and a fat sheep, he just preaching your pulpit. I mean, it's like, it's like a little banny rooster, you know? And he said, but I'll tell you what, we serve God. We do it right. And they're all probably thinking, yeah, your daddy did the same thing you did too, buddy. We whooped him all over this country. It's in there. You bunch of sons of Belial. You're rebelling against God. You got your little golden calves. And they're thinking, well, they've been working pretty good for the last 18 years. I mean, you may not think much of them, but they, they've certainly been doing pretty good so far. Lord he is just rubbing it in. He is adding insult to injury. I mean, I, I know I'm overemphasizing it, but you need to get the context of how idiotic this setting really is. These guys are sitting over there thinking, you little twerp, just wait till you get on the battlefield. We are fixing to show you what this is all about. Your mouth ain't going to help you none when we get you out. We're going to tan your hide. You're mouthing off, son, but we're going to prove that we're mighty men of valor. When we get on that battlefield, we're going to be mighty men of valor. That's right. It's in there if you read it. I'm telling you, I'm not making it up. It's really in there. And so, here they go. They go out on the battlefield. And Jeroboam's nobody's fool. He's fought before. He's, he's undefeated. He knows how to win. So he says, okay, I'm going to divide my army and you get behind him and you get in front of him. We're going to get him in the middle and none of these guys are going to escape. But the one thing that Jeroboam forgot to factor into the battle was God. <laughs> and the reason this story is so cool to me is it's not about how smart Abijah was. It's not about how many men he had. It's not about his military innuendos and acumen and, and knowledge and battle strategy and planning. He just said, let me tell you something, boys. When I do things God's way, God's going to take over and God's going to fight my battle. This is not about Abijah and Jeroboam. This is about God. Yeah, please be seated. And, and you're absolutely right, Abijah did not know what he was doing. He got out there in the middle of the valley. He said, my Lord, have mercy. They in front of us, they in back of us. We in trouble. <laughs> what are we going to do now? Did I really want that? Have you ever got into anything that you said to yourself, did I really want this? My Lord, did I ask, where was my head when I got up this morning? <laughs> Kind of like, one preacher said, kind of like some of them saints. You know, once you get them, you wonder, did you really want them? Praise God. <laughs> I 
like trials of life. Did I really want this? Did I really ask God for this? The beauty of the story and what the chroniclers saw in it to a people that were downtrodden, a people that were lacking in hope, a people whose, whose feelings about God was at an all-time low. He said, I want you to understand that even a beginning king that got absolutely no interest at all in the writing of the kings, a king that is not smart, a king that is not a wealthy, a king that has not been in power a long time, when he made up his mind, I am going to depend on God and I'm going to do it God's way, I'm here to tell you God. God said, when you do it my way, the battle is no longer yours. The battle becomes mine. And the Bible says that God is the one that walked on that battlefield that day. And God said, all right, Abijah, I'm fixing to take over here. And you're fixing to win the greatest victory that's ever been won in the history of this Bible. Oh, yeah. I need some, I need some help. Would you be Abijah? I know he's not a good character, but somebody has to do this. Stand right there. Yeah, somebody got to be twerk. And you be Jeroboam, because this is a mighty man. I would not want to hook it up with this guy right here. Whatever you say, Brother Purdue, that's all right. I'm you, he, he tough. I'm telling you. So here he is, 800,000 men undefeated, out on that battlefield, confident knows he's fixing to win. And here's old Abijah. He's just really a dork, you know. He just... <laughs> really. Read your Bible. Read your Bible. If you don't think I'm telling it right, you read your Bible. I'm telling you. King said, don't even mention the guy. He is too bad to even mention. <laughs> That's right. And so they get on the battlefield. But now listen to me. Because he was doing it God's way. This is what happened. While they were on the battlefield that day and the battle got engaged. All my, not Gabriel, not an angel, not a legion of angels, but the Bible said, God, God, God said, I'm honor bound. When you do it my way, it is no longer your fight. This is my fight. My integrity is at stake. My reputation is at stake. Oh yeah. Sit down, sir. This is what God did. They get out there and all those men and all Abijah, he's looking around them. I got there in front of me there, but I don't know what to do now. It was when God stepped down there. God said, get out of the way, Abijah. This is no longer you and Jeroboam. This is God and Jeroboam. And that little premise of life is what's going to see you through the greatest storms of your life. When you get the knowledge that when I do it God's way, it's not me against my circumstances. It's not me against my dilemma. It's not me against my sickness. It's not me against my problem. It's God against it. And He can handle any problem. He can handle any dilemma. I'm here to tell you, God can fight your battle. feelings of inser in insecurity and inferiority. I don't know about you, but I've been in some bad times in my life. I've been in situations when I knew I was outmanned. I knew I didn't have the capability to fight the fight. I knew I didn't have the knowledge. I didn't have the experience. I didn't have the capability. I was outmanned. I was fighting things that were too big for me. I was fighting things that I didn't know how to deal with it. But I learned a long time ago in reading this little story that you know what God, this is not about how smart I am. This doesn't have anything to do with how long I've been serving God. It doesn't have anything to do with any of my talents or my abilities. But if I can just do what old Abijah did, if I can just find the plan of God and I can get in the plan of God and I can stay there, God will walk down from the craggy heights of heaven and say, get out of the way, son. This is no longer your battle. The battle has become mine and you will win this battle. I don't care what the odds. I don't care how bad it looks. I don't care how difficult the task. You're fixing to win the greatest victory in the history of the Bible. And that's why the Chronicle said, write it down. Write it down. We're going home. We're going to have a city. We're going to have a temple because we're going to do it God's way. There's a revelation in that. Sit down. When a church gets that revelation, when a saint gets that revelation, I'm going to do it God's way. I don't care how my mama thinks about it or my daddy thinks about it. Or I don't care what my job thinks about it. I, uh, 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 uh. This is too big for me. Life's too difficult. There's too many pitfalls. There's too many trials. Heaven's too far away. But when I do it God's way, 
I'll bring it down to one final point and then I'm going to let you go home. One final point. I believe we have preached a concept for years that is right. But I think we have brought it down to single dimensions when God wanted us to understand it in a higher setting. I'm going to use the term spiritual authority. Would you define me that scripture? Corinthians, it said, I think it's 1 Corinthians 11. Christ is the head of man, man is the head of the woman. Wherever it is there, you can find a bishop. Been preaching longer than I have, and preaching better too, for that matter. By fact, when you get into authority, your human will gets involved. Maybe one of these girls stand up, and says, "I knew her. She's my friend. She falls in some love with some little cross-eyed, <coughs> ugly young man." Her daddy said no. And her pastor said no. She said, but you just don't know how he makes me feel. Oh, I just said. <laughs> it's at that point that your human will gets involved. And it may sound trivial here today. Thank you, sis. But you let a young person fall in love with somebody that their pastor feels they shouldn't marry. That's not an easy thing to deal with. Their feelings are involved. They, 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 they love their pastor and they love the work of God, but they're drawn to this person. And all of a sudden their pastor is saying to them, you cannot marry this person. Spiritual authority. Spiritual. Or maybe, maybe you've got a, maybe you've got a, 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 a nice family. A man and a woman. I, is there a husband and a wife that'll volunteer to help me here for just a moment? Don't be scared. I won't hurt you. Right here? The wife will. I don't know if the husband will, but she will. All right, come on. Thank God for... Come stand right here. I don't know these folks. I don't know anybody here, so... What's your name, sis? Lydia. What's your name, brother? Steve and Lydia. All right? Let's just... And I know that this doesn't normally happen. May... How long you been married? I'll ask her. How long you been married? <laughs> 18 years. Okay. You always have to ask the lady. The man, you know, he's out in the ozone somewhere. So they've been married 18 years. So this has probably never occurred, but let's pretend that they had a fight. And let's pretend that uh, they're really into it. This is not a casual discussion about Burger King, whether we're going to have a, you know, a Whopper or a Junior Whopper. This is, I mean, big stuff. You know, one of those marathon things. Couch sleeping deals. Now, I know they don't have a just imagine. Get a, you know, we're pretending. Okay, we're pretending. We're pretending. One of them says, what's wrong to the other one? What are you talking about? I mean, you don't know anything about that. I, I can tell by the look on your face. You've never been down there. Right? What's wrong, dear? Nothing? You haven't spoken to me in three days, really? You know, one of them kind of deals. And let's, <laughs> let's just say, step right over here, sis. Let's just say, because if that's really mad, they wouldn't be standing like that. They'd be standing like this, you know, I'd be like, behind me, bub. And let's just say they're really into this. Now, this scripture says, what's it say, Bishop? Did you find it? It says right here, but I would have you to know. I would have you to know. That the head of every man is God. Now, because of other scriptures, I don't have time to preach the whole message. We can add other things in there too, okay? The, the authority is God, Christ, pastor, husband, mother, children, okay? But what we've done for years is we just got up and preached, wives, obey your husbands. And that just makes all the women smoke. Because she knows he's imperfect. <laughs> she knows he ain't half as smart as she is. <laughs> it's just like, I got to obey this guy, submit myself to this guy. And he, is not, he, he couldn't tie his shoes without me. He can't even pack his own suitcase. Yeah, and for, for years we preach this, wives obey your husbands, you know. <laughs> and for years we preach, uh, be in submission to your pastor, be in submission to your pastor, be in, and, you know, and that's right, both of those are right. But I'm presenting you a higher law today, presenting you a better way, that when you find out God's way, it changes it. So here there, here's Lydia and Steve, they're on a marathon fight, she's mad at him, she knows he's wrong. She knows he's being a real bozo this time. A rubber duck could know that Steve's wrong on this one. But I'm going to tell you what I truly believe in my heart. 
Because that is God's way. Because it's Christ, God, Christ, pastor, man, woman. That when she says, I'm going to do it God's way. Regardless of how I feel. Regardless of what I'm wanting to do. I'm going to do it God's way. The moment she does that, I believe God says, All right, Lydia, would you step out of the way? This is no longer Lydia and Steve. This is now God and Steve. Because when you do it God's way, it's no longer your battle. God says, all right, it's mine. When you submit yourself to the will of God and to the purpose of God, and you do what God told you to do, I'm telling you, the battle is no longer yours. The battle belongs to Him, and the victory will be yours, and God will see to it. Now, one disclaimer. Don't misread this into saying that every time the woman submits, God's going to whoop her husband, because he could have been right. All right, young be seen. I don't have time to preach everything. Give him a hand for helping me today. But where we miss it sometimes on spiritual authority is we get to thinking, well, I just have to obey my pastor. Therefore, I don't get to do what I want to do. Or I have to obey my husband. Therefore, I don't get to do what I want to do. I have to obey my parents. Therefore, I don't get to do what I, I want to do. What you need to get is the revelation taken out of this little story right here that when I get into any situation of life and I don't know where to turn and I don't know who's right and I don't know what to do and I don't even know what's going on in my life, one thing I know that when I do it God's way, He steps in and takes over and the battle becomes His. It's no longer my battle, but it's God's battle. And as long as I submit to His will... And as long as I do it His way, there's not a force that can come against me. There's not a trial that's big enough. There's not a circumstance big enough. There is not anything that can stand before God. It might outdo me, but it will not come against my God. My God is the one that will bring the victory. Give us a little music. That makes you think I'm going to quit preaching. Sometimes that's right. <laughs> I am done the reason I wanted to preach this to you today is after last night's service and after hearing what the bishop had to say this morning I came to the understanding that what this church needs to do right now more than ever before in the history of your experience in this as a body in this local church you need to make a strong commitment to spiritual authority. It's the safest place I find in the Bible. It's not your battle. The moment you say, I'm going to listen to my pastor, the battle is no longer yours. You don't even have to worry about it. It's over. God will fight your battle. Whatever opposition, not the pastor, I'm not talking about that, but whatever opposition in life, whether it's yourself your job, your circumstances, whatever the factors in the battle are, God says, I'll take care of it. I read to you out of that passage. I made you say it out loud, remember? It said, God smote Jeroboam. It didn't say God helped Abijah smite Jeroboam. It said, God smote Jeroboam. It said, God delivered them into their hand. And 500,000 men fell in battle. And a king that didn't hardly know how to fight walks away with the greatest victory in the history of the Bible simply because he did it God's way. The reason I call this the storm is I had a little experience several years ago in Canada. I want to tell you about it. I, I really enjoy uh, just going out in the woods, in the wilderness. That's one of the things I like to do. If you want to make me happy, just dump me off in a field somewhere and let me look at the sun and the trees and the grass and watch animals. And I've had some wonderful experiences in life. I was way up in the northern woods of Canada one time and I crawled on my belly early in the morning before sunrise and got to the edge of a beaver bank and watched some beavers work for about four or five hours. Some of them got within ten feet of me. I just enjoyed it immensely, watching that family of beavers work. Another time I was going through the woods and I saw a mother fox and got up close enough to watch her and she was laying on a hillside. She had five little kit foxes about that big nursing. I guess she got up there real close and got the water. I just enjoy nature. 
enjoy it. So I've taken a few classes on, you know, wilderness survival and how to do all that in case you get out there and get lost and lose your pocket knife and, you know, that kind of stuff. Keep your little mirror, you know, your Boy Scout mirror and all that stuff. <laughs> and uh, took some classes on how to use a compass and all that because sometimes you go in the wilderness and get, get back there and can't find Now, I've always had a real, this is the part that I want to tell you. I've always had a real good sense of direction. Never in my life, outside of the day I'm fixing to tell you about, have I been lost in the wilderness. Never. Help me, sis. Maybe, would you take him out, please? I'm right at the end of my message. I need some help here. And uh, thank you. <clears throat> Let's pray here for just a moment. This is a very important part I want you to get. Let's pray here just a moment. In the name of the Lord, we ask you to help us, God, settle this congregation down right now. Just give me a few more minutes, Lord. Give me a few more minutes. Help me, Jesus. Help me, Jesus. Altar calls an important time, God. Now is when people are going to make the decision. Don't let there be any distractions, God. Help us, Jesus. So I've never been lost in the wilderness. I've always known intuitively where my car was or my camp was or whatever. Never been to the point I didn't know how to get back. On this particular day, I was hunting in northern Canada by myself. I lived up there. I started a church in Saskatchewan. I was there four years. I'd gone to an area I'd never been before, just heard about it. So nobody really knew where I was other than vaguely. And I'd gotten off the blacktop through some wheat fields for many miles. I was literally out there by myself, probably 15 miles from the blacktop. Got out of my car, went in the woods. It was a cold, snowy day. I had all my coveralls on. And as I got ready to leave the car, I thought, you know, I've never done this. I've always carried a compass, but I never took a reading because it was always pretty good weather. But that day as I left my car, I, I uh, took my compass out and just took a reading. Just, just one thing, you know, you just do it. I didn't have a lot of reasons. I just looked at it and started in the woods. I went down a long incline, got out into a flat valley, and there were some, some, I think they were Adler trees, but they were real small trees about uh, an inch across, and they were real thick together. It was a stand of them, and it covered probably uh, half a mile by quarter of a mile. I got down in that and was looking for deer and a storm blew in. And it, uh, I got to looking up at the sky and I thought, you know, this looks like a bad one. And so I thought I need to head back to the car. And while I could see and get my directions, I headed back for my car. Literally within a few minutes, the wind was blowing in circular direction. I couldn't tell where I was going. I thought I was headed in the right direction. And uh, I had enough sense from my classes that I'd taken and the training that I'd taken on try to you know, do the right things in the wilderness. I just stopped, closed my eyes, and sat down for a moment, oriented myself. I said, okay, you're in trouble. Nobody knows where you're at. You're many miles from anywhere. This is a bad storm. Winds are circling. You, you, you have no way of knowing. Everything in me, everything, all my life, every voice that I had trusted, every intuition that I had used and been successful with in my whole life told me my car was right over there. And it had never failed me. Every time I'd made that decision, it had been right. And I started to go, and I remembered my compass. And I thought, hmm, I'm going to check my compass. And I pulled that compass out. When I couldn't see hardly your hand in front of you. Snow and heavy, it was, a, it was a blizzard. And I looked at that compass, and that compass told me to go right back this way. And I remember standing there thinking, my life may depend on what I decide right here. Everything in me said, go here. And that had never failed me. Do you understand? That feeling inside me had always been right. And I said, go there. Go. This is the way. And I stood there probably five minutes just looking at that compass, thinking, what do I do? Everything in me is Is this compass off? And I would bang it and shake it. And that compass said, you better go this way. And I made a decision. I said, you know what? Right or wrong, live or die, I'm going to trust this compass. And I made a U-turn and headed out. About 45 minutes, I literally came out so close to my car, I could touch it. That's how accurate that compass was. I'm going to tell you that you're going to get in a storm so bad in your life, you're not going to know which way to go. You won't know who to trust. You won't know whose advice to take. And everything that you've ever trusted in your whole life may be telling you to go that way. But when you ask your pastor, and he says, go this way, you better look at that compass and say, thank God for a pastor. It doesn't feel right. It doesn't seem right. But God has promised me that if I do it His way, everything's going to be all right. You're going to get in a storm somewhere in your life. 
I want you to stand with me right now and bow your head and close your eyes. Somewhere in your life, you're going to get in a storm. Everything in you is going to scream, go the other way. Take this route. Marry this person. Take this job. Make this decision. Make this move. And your spiritual authority, whoever it might be, is going to say, no, that's not what you need to do. If you don't listen to your compass, you're going to destroy yourself. You're going to head in the wrong direction. You may make it back to God, but you may not because you're opening a door to the power of the enemy of allowing self to come more important than the voice of God. But when you listen to spiritual authority and you say, all right, pastor, all right, husband, all right, mom and dad, all right, God, I'm going to do it your way. I am promising you today you'll make it to heaven. If you'll do what I'm preaching about, God will see to it that you make it to heaven. He will not fail you. With heads bowed and eyes closed, there's going to be a different altar call than you have ever experienced. I'm fixing to open this altar for people to come and stand and make a declaration to God that God... I am pledging publicly by my standing in this altar that I am going to be in submission to my spiritual authority. Not just my husband, not just my pastor, not just my boss or whoever. I'm talking God, the umbrella of spiritual authority that you have placed in my life. I'm going to be in submission. If this church will respond to that, there is no barrier that revival can keep you from heaven. Revival will blow past every barrier, every roadblock, every everything because the power of unity and the power of following the leader that God gave you will overstep every boundary. Heads bowed and eyes closed. I'm opening it right now. Is there a person that will step out and say, I'm submitting myself to spiritual authority? Submitting myself. No looking around. No looking around. Come, stand close. Stand close, stand close. My coming is my testimony that I am going to listen to spiritual authority. My coming to this altar is a statement today. My coming to this altar is a statement to God and to everybody else in the whole world. I'm going to do it God's way. And when I do, God fights my battle. God takes control. When I get in the storms of my life, I'm going to listen. And when I do, God's going to take charge of my life. God's going to do it. Come close, come close. When you get here, just lift your hands and say, God, take my life. Take my life and teach me to be submissive, God. Teach me to listen to spiritual authority, God, that I can win the great victories of my life. This will never be about how smart I am. This will never be about how much talent I have. This is about doing the will of God. This is about doing it God's way. Thank you, Abijah, for obeying the Lord. Thank you for that little story that you gave us that we can understand that God fights my battles when I do it His way. Hallelujah. Hands stretched toward heaven. Hallelujah. 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 Singing, I will, give I will give you all, Jesus. If all is well, I'm going to tell you, I've been in a storm and I didn't know where to turn. Thank God for men that would help me. Thank God, thank God, thank God, thank God for a compass. Thank God, thank God for spiritual authority. Thank God I don't have to fight the devil by myself. Thank God I don't have to deal with my own ability. Thank you, Jesus. Hands lifted. Let's sing it to the Lord. I will give you all. Sing it again. I will give you all. I will give you all. If all is what you ask of me, I will not withhold. My sacrifice is less than giving you my very best. 
help me remember Calvary's cross and be willing to say yes. I will give you all. I will give you all. If all is what you ask of me, I will not withhold. And if my sacrifice is less, again everybody Jesus thank you for speaking to us thank you God thank you God thank you God